If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallier Pride podcast, we have another pair of our dynamic duos. We have Dr. Tessa Gonzalez and Michelle Dawson, and they did a wonderful presentation for us for the MedSLP Collective Summit uh, that just recently took place. And if you're interested in catching their entire presentation and hearing all 14 dynamic duo presentations, uh, you can check that out at MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit. Dr. Tessa Gonzalez is a general pediatrician in Columbia, South Carolina. She graduated from Harvard College and the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. She completed her residency in pediatrics at the University of South Carolina, Prisma Health Children's Hospital. Dr. Gonzalez has worked in a variety of practice settings and currently practices primarily in the newborn nursery. She's also the medical director of a nonprofit pediatric therapy clinic and preschool for children with disabilities. Dr. Gonzalez is the proud mom of two children, one of whom has multiple disabilities and medical complexities. The other half of our dynamic duo is Michelle Dawson. She's an SLP in Staunton, Virginia, is the acclaimed host of First Bite Fed Fun Functional, a weekly speech therapy podcast that addresses all things pediatric speech therapy and is presented by speechtherapypd.com. Michelle authored Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. She's an accomplished lecturer traveling across the nation, delivering courses on best practice for evaluation and treatment of the medically complex infant, toddler, and child with respect to their pediatric oropharyngeal dysphagia, pediatric feeding disorder, as well as language acquisition within the framework of early intervention. She has served as the treasurer for the Council of State Association Presidents, is a past president of the South Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association, a 2017 graduate of the ASHA Leadership Development Program, a 2020 recipient of the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Champion from Feeding Matters, a 2021 recipient of the Luis DiCarlo Award for Outstanding Clinical Achievement from the South Carolina Speech-Language and Hearing Association, a 2021 recipient of the State Clinical Achievement Award from ASHA, from the ASHA Foundation, recognized as an ASHA innovator for South Carolina in 2023, and a nine-time recipient of ASHA's ACE Award for Continuing Education. So thank you so, so much, Dr. Gonzalez and Michelle, uh, for appearing on the show today. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, 
and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hi, good morning, ladies. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey. All right. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. All right. So, Michelle, if you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself. My name is Michelle Dawson. I am first a mommy and a wife and second a speech pathologist. And I host First Bite Fed Fun Functional Speech Therapy Podcast with Dog as the Sidekick. That's really Erin. She's our amazing co-host. And I'm the author of Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science, Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. And as of July 1, I will be the Director of Clinical Education at James Madison University bringing PFD and AAC to the university clinic. And I'm so excited. So yeah. Amazing. Oh, Michelle, I'm so happy to hear that. Congratulations. Yeah. So as the panic and anxiety ensues in my body, but we're going to be fine. Jesus has this. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us on. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. All right. And Tessa, tell the people a little bit about yourself. My name is Tessa Gonzalez. I'm a pediatrician here in Columbia, South Carolina. We were very sad to lose Michelle to her new fabulous role up in Virginia. <laughs> we're all very, so very proud of you, Michelle. So I, as I said, I'm a pediatrician, general pediatrician. Currently, I do most of my work in the newborn nursery, well newborns. I also am the medical director of a small nonprofit therapy clinic that does PTOT speech therapy for kids here in the Midlands. It runs a small for children or not daycare, a preschool for children with disabilities. Mom to two kids, uh, one whom the older one has a rare genetic mutation. She has multiple medical uh, complexities, developmental issues, and pediatric feeding disorder. And she attends the preschool that I am the medical director of. So um, I have both the mom role and the professional role in this world, which is always interesting. Tessa and I were just talking before. We have so much in common with both of our children. You know, so lovely to meet you, Tessa. So thank you so much for joining us. Having me. So, Michelle, what are we going to talk about today? Well, I, when y'all started planning this dynamic duo on Sunday, my thought process was, as well as dogs, was a theme that Tessa and I had talked about first that we keep circling back around to that there's there's a general breakdown amongst how to effectively engage in interprofessional practice amongst our profession and pediatrician, right? But a lot of that stems from 
lack of understanding on our part and exposure as to what pediatricians know and do in their experiences are with pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, as well as with AAC, but that's a conversation for another day. But it also goes back to the onus falls on us as the faculty and as the professors and as the external clinical supervisors to model IPE, to model IPP. And so when y'all reached out and were like, hey, we're thinking about doing this, I was like, oh my God, Tessa, because her and I are, I love her. She's a very dear friend of mine and she's come to my classes on campus and she's talked to the class on campus. We've talked about this on, on previous podcast episodes and she's just a huge advocate for IPE and IPP. So kind of wanted to hold that conversation on how we need we have to do better, but we have to live it in order to do better. Can you explain a little bit of IP and IPP? I know what those mean, but for the longest time, I didn't know what those meant. And I just nodded and smiled when people said it, but I'm guessing there's other listeners that, that feel the same way. So it's okay. I am gray haired and Botox actually do for an appointment, but I can tell you it was not covered when I was in grad school, which is honestly not that long ago, but it's starting to become longer ago. So interprofessional education is the act of learning about your allied health, medical health, and community partners' professions, what they're bringing to the table. A fabulous way of upsetting an occupational therapist is misunderstanding that their one job is fine motor skills. They will laser eyeball shoot you if you think that, right? But when we actually learn about everything that falls under the umbrella of an occupational therapist, it's going to blow your mind because they break down every single step to a activity of daily living, right? But my understanding and growing and knowing that is the act of interprofessional education and what the outcome, the end result is interprofessional practice, how we effectively communicate and collaborate for patient care, right? How we're picking up the phone and holding the conversation or popping by their office and knocking on the door and saying, hey, I have a worry or empowering our caregivers to do that, which is another piece that's often missed within, within our world is that we forget we're supposed to take our interprofessional education and empower the caregivers especially for our little ones that have complex needs so that they can then advocate independently. So where does Tessa fall into this? She's very gracious and has entertained four billion questions that I have asked. I don't think at the beginning we had any formal conversations about interprofessional education or interprofessional practice. These were conversations that came up naturally. And while I appreciate the way that that happened, and especially in our relationship, I think that, you know, that worked well. But what I think as a physician is that I think it's to our detriment that there are not more formal conversations about this. You know, I can say, as I was kind of looking up the specifics about what the guidelines are for medical education for residents, it is actually one of the pediatric residency uh, curriculum guidelines that pediatricians are supposed to learn about interprofessional education and interprofessional practice throughout the course of their residency. And of course we do because, you know, we're in the hospital and we see all sorts of other professionals. But I would say that there is not very 
very much formal attention paid to that kind of education. And I, I think there ought to be more. I think that, you know, having known you, Michelle, obviously we've had lots of conversations about this now, and I am so grateful that you are working to educate all of the lovely incoming SLPs that you've worked with about this topic. We need to do more of that from the medical side too. And I I don't think I have the exact answer of how to do that, but I think these conversations are a great first step and hopefully we can, you know, move forward from there. So that's where our profession is playing catch up. And so like it's, if we look at the way that the academics are laid out, we have ASHA who we get our certification through, but the accredited bodies are like where we can get our master's degree from. They're accredited through the CAA, Council of Academic Accreditation. And the overarching CAPSED, which is the academic kind of mentorship, and they have outreach and they have tutorials and um, Council of Academic Programs for Communicative Sciences and Disorders. There's kind of three different entities that have their hands in the pot for speech pathologists. But our formal training is primarily set so that we learn about the big nine and the big nine being like fluency, cognitive impairment, or technology, language, dysphagia. And it's kind of the onus of IPP and IPE are pushed off on individual professors who may or may not have practiced, which is a conversation for another day. But we do have a lot of faculty who are brilliant and do the coolest freaking research out there, but they don't have the experience of actually treating to guide that IPE, IPP. And then we're pushing off on external clinical supervisors who may or may not themselves have experiences. And so it's not really structured. It's not very formal. And CAPSID has recognized this and is working to rectify it. So now they have ongoing webinar series about IPE and IPP. And thank you, Dr. Grace Howe, who's the chair of North Carolina Central University, if I got that right. Grace, if I got it wrong, I apologize, ma'am. And she's one of the chairs of the IPE IPP, but she talks about how we don't necessarily know this because we haven't worked it. And so we're just kind of, it's better, but we have room to grow. I think what's so fascinating is, you know, in, in pediatric world, in therapy world, there's different professionals that you talk to and you work with and collaborate with all the time. You know, there's OTs, there's PTs, there's teachers. And then what's interesting is in sort of adult medical speech pathology world, it's GIs, it's ENTs, it's the intensivists, you know, it's the hospitalists. And, and so it's interesting learning how to navigate all of these different professional relationships and, you know, are, are they different? Yeah. Is it a similar dynamic? It is. And we have to learn to not only respect others, but really learn to lean in on them, you know, when we need to. And I think of, I didn't really learn, you know, and Tessa, I'm, I'm curious your opinion on this. I didn't really realize the benefit of this until I became a mom of my son with special needs. And I realized how many specialists we had to go see and how much I appreciated when they would ask to consult with each other. And I was like, oh, okay, now I see how sort of you bring this to the table, you bring this to the table, you work together on this common goal. 
And I just, I thought it was like just this beautiful symphony that I was watching. And it totally struck a chord with me in that I was like, I, we don't do this professionally. Like we, we really very bad at this. I, I, I will be honest and I will, you know, I will take responsibility for saying that. So yeah, Tessa, I'm curious to hear sort of, you know, I, I know we're meshed in this mommy professional role, but I'd love to hear if, if that helped you as well. Absolutely. You know, what I strikes me about that story, though, is that is how it should work. And I'm glad that it did work that way for you, at least in some instances. We have had some similar experiences as well. You know, it takes a while to find the right team. But when you do and everybody's in together and talking and collaborating, you know, that certainly makes for a, a much better experience. I think, unfortunately, the medical sphere is very siloed as well. And so, you know, one subspecialist doesn't necessarily talk with another and, or they may communicate, you know, through the notes, you know, the medical record, of course, you know, we'll review that as we see a new patient, but there needs to be better communication, I think, in a lot of ways and better collaboration, both within the various medical providers and then also therapists as well, especially when you have a child like mine who there is really no way to separate out some of the developmental needs from the medical needs. And I mean, they are just so intertwined. You really cannot separate those out. I think from my experience, you know, one of the the best experiences that we've had to that, I think really kind of demonstrates that how interrelated they are has been our experience with a multi multidisciplinary feeding clinic that we have attended for years now. Actually, we were discharged from that clinic because my daughter's doing so great with eating now. That was one of our first experiences of really having various providers in the conversation literally at the same time. I mean, in the same visit, having an SLP, a dietitian, the GI nurse practitioner, and our family there all at once. That was so powerful. Not only was it easier for us as a family to just not have to do the rounds of, you know, telling one provider what one, the other one said and, you know, trying to communicate all of that, but just the collaboration and having everyone be on the same page, having everyone add their piece to the puzzle in real time has been so beneficial. I wish we could do more of that because I think that could be so helpful. Has it transformed your professional practice at all, Tessa? Are you, are you more mindful of sort of making these referring, you know, connections and things? I think it definitely has this point, being in the newborn nursery, I don't do very much referring. Most of my patients go back to their, you know, go out to their private clinics after I see them. But certainly when I was still working in full-time general practice in the, in the office, it was something that I very much kept in mind. I was also very lucky in the practice that I was in that we had a care coordinator, which is not something that every pediatric practice is going to be able to have, unfortunately. And having that person there, not only to help with the care coordination, of course, but also to be kind of that repository of all of the knowledge of the local providers, all the therapists, the early interventionists, et cetera, that was so beneficial. And I think that, again, just speaks to the fact that you really need, you need everyone, you need all these professionals in, in the conversation. And it's, it's really difficult for any one provider to be the one making all of these decisions and having all of this knowledge in their head. So I think one of the big takeaways for me has been knowing who to call because I can't be the one to know everything. I don't know every single therapist in Columbia and what 
their particular specialties and areas of interest are. But if I know that I can call on this person who does know a lot of that, that is so helpful. Yeah. It's it's interesting you say that when we lived in New York, my son's first pediatrician that it was actually a fluke. It wasn't the pediatrician that our our doctor had originally wanted us to see. I think she was out sick the day we were supposed to come in or something. So it ended up being another guy that came in and he he actually had done his he wasn't taking on new patients, he wasn't taking on new cases, but he had done his residency in genetics. And so he was really fascinated in my son's case because he's like, I can't find anything about this condition. Like he just totally nerded out on it. And like the, you know, scientist in me just totally nerded out with him, even though it was my son. But, you know, he was like, I would love to, you know, take him on as a patient. Like I just, you know, this is my jam. I just, you know, love connecting you with the specialist that he needs. And, you know, let's get you, I want to get you affiliated with, you know, this, you know, children's clinic. I want you to talk to this professional, this professional. And like my head just spun because I was like, how do you like, how do you know all this? Like, you, like, how did your brain just realize that just from looking at this child for five minutes, he needed to see all these specialists. And, you know, he's like, this is what I do. This is what I'm just immersed in. And it was, it was just such a gift because he was the best pediatrician. I was devastated when we, when we ended up moving from New York and because he just was so just genuinely cared about getting him to all the right specialists. And he just knew all of them too. And then when we moved to Florida, the, the pediatrician's office that we go to now, she's, quote unquote, just the secretary. And I would never want to say she is just the secretary, but she's been there for 20 years. She knows everybody in this area. And I will just call her and I will say, Hey, you know, I think we need to see somebody. And she's like, Oh, okay. You need to go to this children's hospital an hour away. And you need to see this doctor. And he only works on Thursdays and I won't let you see anybody else. And what's funny is now that you know, I've talked to other, you know, moms at my son's school. They're like, do you know the secretary at this one doctor's office? She seems to know everybody in town. And I was like, yes, that's our doctor. So, you know, she technically should have the role of, you know, care coordinator because that she's so strong and so wonderful in that. But it's made all the difference in the world because I think, you know, when you're a mom and you're immersed in all of that, you can't see the big picture of what specialist your kid needs. You don't know what your kid might need. You don't know what's available and what's out there for your kid. So. As a mom who's also a pediatrician, you know, I, I get asked a lot by various folks, you know, like, oh, well, you must know exactly who to see or exactly what to do in these situations. And, you know, my response is, no, I, I really don't. I, I'm a pediatrician and I could probably figure this out for one of my patients, but for my child, my mom, you know, that's, that's my role is mom. So what I've found has been really the only way to do this for me, and, and I'm sure this would be different parent, but for me has been to find the right team. I have found, for the most part, physicians, therapists, teachers, et cetera, who I trust to help make these decisions because I can't be the one doing all of that. I can't be the one making all of those decisions. So my job has been to find the right people and then trust them to help us. And I think that's something that, you know, isn't unique to me as a mom slash pediatrician. This is something that hopefully other people can take to heart as well as finding that right team is so essential. On this side of it, as the one who like is the connector, it's very scary to make referral requests to help build the team, especially when you don't know the specifics recipient of the referral. And that's 
when you move, and I'm literally living this right now, when you move to a new area and you have to learn the new providers, not all providers excel in certain areas. Do not give me the child that has a fluency disorder. I will make it worse. I know the limits of my abilities and that's not in my cards, right? But when As the feeding therapist, when we get called in, oftentimes we're the first person in the door, especially in early intervention, which in and of itself is so incredibly isolating because in the world of EI, you don't have the opportunity to really often one-on-one collaborate with the other allied health members. So when we see something, hey, I'm seeing signs and symptoms that would indicate a referral to GI, I'm going to reach out to your pediatrician. I know in Colombia, the GI I want them to see. I know the GI I do not want them to see. Yes, we'll just gloss over the rest of that one. But that's a real statement for all practitioners. And that piece of requesting the referral and then hoping that they find someone who is an advocate on the other side that's going to listen to what I say and why I want the referral. But also my referral request and the ability for them to hear the message I want them to hear is predicated on how am I communicating that to the specialist? How am I communicating what it is that I'm seeing? Because they may get... 20 referrals a week for spit up and assume it's GERD. What makes my referral request different? Why do I think it's something like EOE or why do I think we have a stricture? What am I seeing that makes it stand out so that they're going to want to pursue diagnostic work as opposed to just writing a prescription for, I don't know, Pravacid, right? What I have found is that different parts of the country have amazing access to care. Like Boston Children's, their pediatric feeding clinic is amazing. Cincinnati, they're known for the triple scope. I mean, you get ENT, pulmonary, and GI all in doing the scope at once, talking about it. But if you go to Stanton, Virginia, that is not a thing, right? When we're working on who in our community to help support, there's unique barriers to access to healthcare. Let's talk a little bit about, I know you both sort of brought up, you know, what do we do? You know, we want all this picture perfect collaboration and you want everybody to work together for the greater good of the child and the family. And on paper, that sounds all, you know, rainbows and butterflies and how life should be. But sometimes we all are fighting for the same thing, but we take different highways to get there. And how do you think we navigate sort of these professional disagreements? And I know I was pretty rough on my child's therapist when he was younger. I fired a lot of therapists. And and it was a lot of because I didn't know what I was looking for. And so they brought to the table what they thought was the best thing, which I didn't agree with. And so it just wasn't a fit. You know, it wasn't like they did anything wrong. I was out of line. It just wasn't a good fit. Right. And so I think, you know, as my child's gotten older, I know sort of exactly the methodologies that work for him, the clinical characteristics that I want this therapist to embody. I've, I've learned all that now, right? So I can make these better decisions for my child. But how do you guys handle or what do you think we do when there are major disagreements or discrepancies between how professionals agree on how to handle a specific kid or case? That's a, you want to go first? That's a good question. I think on a parent level, I agree with you. I did very similar things, although probably more from the medical side. I fired several medical providers that were not working for us. 
And rarely was it because I thought that they were doing anything actually wrong, medically speaking. It just, again, they just weren't the right fit for our family. And I had come to realize, I think by then, what my plan was going to be, that I really just needed to trust these physicians to to be the right person for my daughter and be the right person for our family. And if they weren't, then that wasn't going to be a, a fruitful relationship for us. But on the professional side, I think that can be very difficult when you have disagreements between various providers. I think I see that less between medical providers in various specialties because they, for better or worse, I think there tends to be a lot of, well, I, I guess part of it is, again, I think that kind of siloing in some ways can be helpful in the sense that people aren't stepping on each other's toes quite as much when the GI is really focused on this one very small thing and the pulmonologist is focused on this other very small thing. That can be helpful. There's less disagreement, I think, when you have a situation like that. The downside to that, though, is then you do miss out on that collaboration. And I think so it can be really hard when you need these people to talk and you need the GI to talk to the pulmonologist because these two things are obviously interacting in some way. And each one is just saying, no, I only handle this portion and not that portion. That can be great because they're not stepping on each other's toes, but also can be very problematic if you really need that collaboration to happen. Anytime that I've found that there has been a disagreement or, you know, a breakdown in that kind of professional relationship, I think going back to the basics is really helpful. You know, just reframing, you know, what let's all back up and, and get back to, you know, what is our goal here? Obviously, we're all here to try to help this child. And sometimes you know, you can get really entrenched in what you're doing and, you know, what your own role is. It can be hard to back off on that. So back, you know, readdressing kind of where you are. Sometimes it can also be really helpful to, I think, to reframe the conversation from the beginning because we all come in at different points. And I think that can be really hard when the pediatrician may have seen this child from literally the day they were born. And so they have a very different set of information, of perspective than an SLP who maybe started seeing the patient when they were four, you know, which isn't to say that the SLP isn't doing the right thing. It's just a very different perspective. So sometimes just kind of backing up and, and starting from the beginning and going back to basics can be really helpful with that. I 1000% agree with everything she said. And my other thought is when I go in and I do an eval, I, on my eval day, and I didn't used to do this, but over the course of evolution in my care, I now tell families, my job is to put myself out of a job. You don't want me forever. Like my job is to get in, do the thing I'm supposed to do, which is coaching the caregiver to be independent and then get out. That's it. And I feel very strongly that our individuals that will always qualify for special education services. My brother-in-law has IDEA Part A. He's 45, just turned 46. And he will always be eligible for services, right? Does he need speech therapy right now? No. Are we starting to see some cognitive declines and maybe some troubleshooting? Yes, but he's 45. He has autism, CVI, CP. We have a big picture here. But when we're 
working in the framework of early intervention because that's my wheelhouse is EI. We see the families oftentimes when they first start their journeys, right? So we have to meet them where they are, which means in the world of EI, we have to have firm grasp on our emotional intelligence and knowing that these families are currently living their trauma, whether or not they recognize that, right? And so I know I'm a lot. I have ADD. I have ADHD. I come in like a bull in a china shop because I'm enthusiastic and I'm happy and I love what I do. But sometimes when I come in and I'm, you know, therapeutic presence engaged, the moment they can see me, shell is on, right? But I'll come in the door and we might have gotten bad news that day. Or we might not have gotten the results that we hoped for, but it's not bad news. It's just different news, right? That means Shell has to check her energies and reset to meet them where they are in that moment. The ability to every single week when we walk in the door to put whatever thought and process we have at the front door, but to meet them where they are and find out what do you need this week? Do you need help getting a new formula? Do we need help getting new vocabulary selected on our device? How did that pacing strategy work last week? But also, what do you need from me this week? And being able to ask those questions, tell me your joy this week. What was your praise moment? That's what my grandma would say. Give me something to praise this week. (laughs) So like, maybe not with that religious term, but like, that's how I was raised. I love Jesus and a cuss. (laughs) But like, that having the ability to switch in and out of those conversations is key for what we offer our families, as well as being able to know about signs and symptoms and request referrals here, here, and here with the knowledge or the empowerment of the parent. So on my end, I'll do my eval. Then we have an IFSP meeting. Then I administer the routines-based interview to find out where we are, what, where can we plug in our strategies, our supports. And then we go through and we do the intervention. But I might not be the therapist long-term that you're looking for. Some families still really want direct service delivery. And that's not what I understand current evidence-based practice to be. And in South Carolina, where we're still not adhering to IDEA Part C, where we still don't have licensed professionals acting as the service coordinator, but unlicensed, uncertified entities, which is conversation for another day. But if they're used to watching someone bring a bag of toys in the home and sit down and play with the bag of toys, the family may misconstrue that that is best practice and not understand the value in sitting with them at their kitchen table and holding those conversations. And in trying to convey that to the next generation of speech pathologists on this is what we should be doing, but this is really what you're going to see. But we have to be able to shift that and be able to talk with the professionals and, and the physicians. That's we have a lot of work to do there. Wait, do you know Allison Ware? She's an SLP in Texas. She's one of our mentors in the collective. She's amazing. Yeah. She has set up a really good EI referral program from the NICU to EI, and she's done a smashingly good job of it. Yes, we need more Allison Wares in the world. Yes, because every state has their own interpretation on IDEA Part C, which is 
kind of scary that you go from one state to another state and you don't know what services you're going to receive or the value of those services, or are those individuals acting outside of their scope of practice because that's the way the policy is written because a PT really can't give recommendations on dysphagia. But if you go to Kentucky, you might have a PT trying to like lead the entire team and that's nerve wracking (laughs) as well as like, where are we on our ethics here? (laughs) So Yeah, I think I feel like I sort of just had a brain explosion when you were talking, Michelle, because I think you hit so many phenomenal points on the head there. I think, you know, anybody that knows you knows you're just an incredibly empathetic and compassionate therapist. And I can't stress enough, like how important that is to have that characteristic when you're working with not only these medically fragile kids, their families. And I think of how emotionally fragile I was as a mom and the the whole emotional intelligence piece, I think is so huge. And I just finished a healthcare leadership course in my PhD studies, and it really just changed so much of how I thought about healthcare leadership in that this emotional intelligence piece can't be overlooked because exactly as you said, you have to meet the family and the parents where they're at. And I think so many times I had professionals you walk in the door and just unload. We need to do this, 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 and this. You need to go see this specialist, this specialist, this specialist. And I would just like fall into a puddle of tears because of the morning I had already had, I could not absorb that. And I would leave and just not do anything because I wasn't available to hear the information that day. Nobody cared to hear how I was doing that day. And I didn't listen to anything. So nothing got done. Right. So it just is like a perpetual cycle of just feeling like a horrible, horrible mother. But then there are other times when therapists would stop and or doctors would stop and say, you know, how are you doing today? What can I help you with? What can I help you navigate? And it's almost like, okay, you know, today I'm okay. Today, yeah, let's go see that other specialist or talk to me about what you're thinking the need might be here. And I think it's so, it's so, so, so important. I can't stress this enough to have that emotional intelligence and meet that family where they are. And and it may be the smallest step. It may be introducing just a new food that day, or it may be conquering the whole world of going to see 27 new specialists at the children's hospital. But it's it's so important. I can't stress it enough. I know I've said that so many times to to really see how the family is doing that day and act on that. So and I wasn't always the therapist that could do that. So please know I have failed and gone down like in a flame of glory and been the therapist that walked in and said, oh no, but you have to do da da da. And then I hear Aaron in my head say, Michelle, did you read the room? But like, I'm so fixated on advocating for this kid, but like, no, we got to get him here, here and there. And it's like, oh hell, they are not there today, Michelle. Take it back. <laughs> like, take it back. <laughs> like, But emotional intelligence isn't a check and done. It is a, it's lifelong. And knowing that the things that I'm bringing to the table, the traumas that I have are also right there. And Tessa will tell you, she's the one that caught Bear having an inguinal hernia because I called her one time and I was like, normal that like his right testicles like the size of the lemon and she was like no it was the baby girl's birthday party and you were like no michelle that's that's not and you were so calm and you were like don't google this and i was like okay so of course i googled it and was like this is how we die but like now whenever i'm at a family's house and they're changing the diapers like you know they change them in front of you i'm always like okay do we have a micropenis do we have an inguinal hernia do we have this this and this because of the things i've seen with other patients that you know where are they you know in there also, his testicles are fine now, so thank you, Tessa. You're very welcome. <laughs> but I think it's also really important. I completely agree with everything you guys have said. And I think it's really important for SLPs to remember and not sell themselves short with the fact that you all do 
have access to so much information from the families, so much communication with the families, a relationship that is very different than what we as physicians get with our patients. And when we've talked in the past about, you know, some kind of tips and and how this collaboration between SLPs and physicians, especially pediatricians, can happen. That's been one of the things that I've really tried to emphasize is that I want SLPs to own what they know, the information that they have, the things that they've seen in the house, especially those of you that do home health and IDA Part C services, early intervention kind of things, because you guys do get so much more information than we do as pediatricians. And I know some of that is on us, that we as pediatricians don't always listen, and we should be so much better at listening to all of the other professionals that are working with the, the patients that we work with. But as an SLP, to remember that, especially the, you know, the newest SLPs, you're in your first year working in home health, that doesn't matter. You have so much information. Make sure that you own that and bring that to the table and don't let anyone, you know, tell you that you don't know these things. You know so much information and that can be so beneficial to a physician because we just simply cannot get that we will never be in our patients' homes unless we really have some very unusual practice model. We will not ever be in a patient's home. And so getting that information and using that information to help the patient is can be so beneficial. So it's that communication piece back and forth. That's where when I'm acting as the clinical supervisor, I have the students write down what they're seeing, write it down. Walk me through what are you going to talk to the doctor about? Make it make sense, make it short, make it brief. And then I hand them the phone while I'm sitting right there and we practice ourselves. And then we call and I say, I always ask for the nurse, explain who you are, that you're the student. And then I'm always like on speakerphone. So I'm right there. And then, and what I found was that a lot of the practices that I worked closely with in Columbia, they would know that it would be my student and they would give the student grace to fumble through and make those mistakes because you're going to make mistakes when you're first making those phone calls. I still insert foot in mouth as an adult. But when you have that opportunity to have a safe space to grow and practice when you're requesting this or just communicating, hey, this family is really struggling to afford the new formula that you prescribed. I'm not sure if they've shared that with you. Are there resources available? Is there a different formula? Being able to hold even that conversation over, it does mean that we have to take time out of our week, which if you work at a practice where they're worried about productivity, that can be very overwhelming. But part of IDEA, part part C, part of that parameter for early intervention is coordination, right? So it's not just the direct service delivery, which is sitting with the family doing coaching, not picking the parents out. I mean, it's an IFSP. We're training family, right? Part of that, you can sit on the phone with the mom and the physician. You can sit right there with the uncle or the grandmother, whoever has custody and say, hey, do you want me to be with you? And we can call them together. And then doing that with them. So that way they feel that they can reach out to the doctor and ask a question if they're feeling vulnerable, especially when working with historically disadvantaged individuals, taking the time out to reach them there and empower them there is huge. And I lost it, but uh, it'll come back. But that's, that's, 
huge misconception within EI is that we can't do that with the caregivers. We can absolutely make those calls with them while we're there. Oh, feeding matters. That's another call that we make all the time. Um, the power of two, because sometimes caregivers don't want to talk to me as their licensed professional. They want to talk to another caregiver. So the power of two program from feeding matters is a free parent mentorship where a caregiver can call and talk to another caregiver that's gone through training. Jen and Heidi have worked with them to help set them for success and how to coach another caregiver. And, and that's a phenomenal program that's available for free. I love that you mentioned all that, Michelle, because I think, you know, there's so much talk about productivity and all that stuff. And that's obviously a whole nother tangent we could go on some other day. But, you know, with SLPs or with different facilities or things, thinking that sort of care coordination is not billable time or is off the clock and is not part of our scope of practice is something that we should be able to hand off to, you know, assistant or a secretary or something. And I just, no. <laughs> and so thank you for spelling that out, but that is part of your state regulations because it's, it's such a crucial part and, and it's a, a majority of what we do. Yes. And, and it literally is, if you actually get into IDEA Part C parameters and you look at what the law says, that's what the licensed professional is supposed to be doing during those sessions, which is, I mean, I worked in the Mecca. Columbia is where they make all the things that are plastic and vibrate to wake patients' faces up, which is not a thing and we know we don't need to do, but literally worked in the Mecca. So I would walk in after a family had had another feeding therapist and they'd done all the non-speech oral motor exercises and, and you know overstimulated a child and put them into oral defensiveness. But I'm like, 